everyone. Welcome back to the Minute Women podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. How are you this week, Linnea? I am good. You know, I just, I, as some of our listeners know, if you listened to the last couple episodes, I am back in my little hometown of Lunenburg, staying safe away from all of the COVID scaries in Halifax right now. It's but so far from me. And it's, it is so far <laughs> from Grace. It makes me sad. Yeah. And it's so exciting to be getting the vaccine soon mm. for like a couple yeah. thousand people. And it's, it's really interesting to have that perspective of like, mm. because now like in Halifax, we have like lockdown light, I'd like to say. Like, yeah, it's not I think that's right. It was the first wave, but it's definitely like things are closed and you're not supposed to be going out. And I will say Maritimers are excellent at judging people for breaking rules. <laughs> it's just yes, like they are. you just feel the glare from strangers or just like feel the pressure of people just asking you like, conversational mm-hmm. questions that outside of covid would be like oh they're just like asking how your week's going but you know that they're really asking you like where have you 100%, been what are your plans 100%. <laughs> yeah. um but yeah it's it's been really interesting to like think about like just because christmas is such a time of year for like strict traditions and i don't mean that in like their no their, hard but it's something that you do every year very like steadfast and I think for most people this is really the only time of year that they have those and so to be going home and like I was on the phone with my mom the other day just hearing like what her like what Christmas plans are and I was like oh Mm -hmm. yeah we like we won't go to midnight mass like yeah yeah that's a big thing for my nana yeah so for the first time we're not doing like midnight mass in like a decade yeah. and you have to like book your mass, which one you want to go to. And for my mom, it's always Catholic like singing man. in church, singing in church yeah. is like th- her favorite part of Christmas. And yeah. as the congregation, we're not allowed to sing. So yeah. it's just like little things like that. So I was like, Oh yeah, this is like really scary. And, and Cape Breton, way, like there's no active yeah, exactly. in Sydney where my parents live and, and where I'm from. So yeah, but they are very like, same as Lunenburg, very cautious. It's definitely right. like an older demographic. The fear well, is like, God really love my parents. Here. But I said to them, I was like, oh, if kind of, if this is continuing, like, I don't know what I'm going to do for New Year's, but I might, I'm, I said, I might go to like, see what Grace is doing in Cape Breton. And I might go to Cape Breton. And my mom's like, as long as you don't stop in Halifax to get gas, get out of your car, like use the washroom, like as long as you just drive straight through Halifax, that's okay. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's so funny because like I grew up in a family where like the drive from Halifax to Cape Breton is like, it's not crazy long. It's only like no. four and a half hours, but our family was a no stop family. Like no. as soon as the kids were old enough, no stops. And then it's just such like a a divide of are you a stop family or are you a not stop family? In Cape Breton? Yeah. <laughs> like, are you a stop on the drive or a not stop on the drive? Yeah. And I know some people, it's like, oh, man, like, what am I going to do when I can't stop wherever? Like, our <laughs> traditional stop thing. And I'm like, oh, I've been prepared for this my whole life. <laughs> no stops. <laughs> no stops. Full send. No stops. That's so funny. <laughs> I think I think my family in general is a no-stop family. It's kind of like the type of people who are one trip from the car with all the groceries. Like is it yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. like I definitely like come from that type of family. Like 
It's just like you will break your fingers. You're not trying hard enough. No, you will break your fingers on Soapy's bags before you leave that milk jug behind. Like, yeah, a hundred percent. The extra effort to go out on another trip, never. Yes. So talking about diehard, dedicated Nova Scotians and uh, Nova Scotian Heritage Minutes, I actually know what this episode is and I'm so excited and I've been waiting for it. And I think a lot of our fans have been waiting for it. So I hope people are really excited, but I will let Grace as, as tradition, we only have so many traditions left right now, this holiday season. (laughs) I will let Grace tell you all the exciting Heritage Minute we are doing today. <clears throat> you know, I, I think we've been doing this long enough, you know, uh-huh. tried and true. It's been almost a year that this podcast has been in the works and the planning at this point. Yeah, uh, I think we're ready to tackle oh my God. the infamous Halifax <gasps> Explosion Heritage yes. Minute. Yes, we are. <laughs> the oh, absolute oh, God like, damn, I am so excited. Nothing makes me more proud to be a Nova Scotian than the words, come on, acknowledge. Oh, <laughs> it just, oh, just chills. When you said it, just chills. <laughs> so for those who don't know, A, what are you doing? Like, yeah, I'm disappointed. How do you not know this heritage minute? I'm a little Get disappointed Get off our podcast. You. <laughs> you need to stop right now. Stop everything and go watch the yeah. Halifax Explosion Heritage Minute. But yeah. it's, it's. A uh, minute to commemorate the Halifax explosion, which was uh, an accidental explosion that occurred in, in Halifax in 1917 during the First World War. But it really follows Vince Coleman, who was a um, train or a rail yard operator. Yeah. And he manages to telegraph uh, a train and it stops the train from entering the city because he knows that the explosion is going to happen. And so he saves a couple hundred yeah. lives by doing that. Um, yeah. And is able to, in those radio calls before uh, the explosion happens, is able to alert people that this is happening in Halifax, which helped get yeah. supplies and medical medical supplies and food supplies and things on the way sooner than if and the explosion had happened and nobody had been able to get in touch. So he he helps with the recovery and, and aftermath process as well. Yeah, and he loses his life by doing this. Like he chooses to yeah. stay behind and send these messages and try and stop the train rather than kind of run for and, and try and save himself. Yeah. Um, but it's... I think it's definitely a great heritage minute because it does the thing that I like, which is it's, it takes an event that you probably already know and, and highlights a, a part of it that you probably never would have heard of otherwise. Yeah. Like yeah. Vince Coleman is not integral to the story of the Halifax explosion, but he's clearly this like hero that deserves to be recognized. Right. And people wouldn't have known about Vince Coleman unless he was a rail yard operator who people were actually getting these messages from. And because there were, because there was that like report, that catalog of his conversation, we're able to know that, yeah, like he did indeed stop the trains that were coming in and was able to like reroute and, and kind of let people know what was going on. Because at that yeah. time, that was really the fastest method of communication. Um, yeah, sending through Morse code his yeah. his telegraphs, which like that's the the scene in the Heritage Minute that's yeah. like really iconic is him using yeah. the Morse code sender 
and tapping and he's waiting for them to acknowledge that they've received his message yeah um mm. just before the explosion goes off so oh. yeah he's cool guy interesting event great heritage minute and it happens right in and around Christmas time. So there was just yeah. the anniversary of it uh, last week. So yeah, and it for, was the first year they've ever not been able to do an in-person memorial since the since the Halifax explosion happened. So yeah, so hopefully this can be some people's memorial. It's a little late, but yeah, hopefully we'll we can do our use best. It. We can do we can do our best to replace it. So we're gonna talk mostly about. The events that occurred because I actually really didn't know like I knew that it was an explosion on a ship and it was yeah. due to the collision of ships but I didn't really know yeah. like the specifics of of what happened um yeah. just because I feel like normally when we talk about the Halifax explosion it's definitely more about what happens afterwards um, yeah and I don't know if it's and I don't know if it's being from a port town like another port city kind of as Halifax was um or from being like on the social an hour away like there were buildings that the glass shattered like as far as Lunenburg like even farther <laughs> I think like people like recall that there's there's stuff about that and and yeah I don't know if it's because it's a port community but the health act explosion was definitely something that we heavily talked about and discussed. And like, there's a memorial here about the health act explosion in Lunenburg. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely something I grew up like knowing about. It's also eerie, like living in Halifax now because they do like the, the city has definitely been rebuilt since then, yeah. over a hundred years later, but to see like photographs of like, it's like, oh, I know that hill and I know yeah. those streets. Like those are still the streets that are here yeah. today. It's just there's not a single building on them. And it's yeah. just like debris and, and yeah, rubble. Halifax was, from what I understand, a fairly well-developed city before the explosion, like for the time. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely um, would have been one of the largest cities kind of like east of Quebec. Yeah. Um, and definitely the largest in the Maritimes, as oh, it kind sure. of still is. Um Yeah. But yeah, so do you want to learn all about the Halifax explosion? <laughs> I sure do. And, and then, of course, first. of course, we'll have to, before we get into it, I guess we should shout out that you were in the Shattered City movie. <laughs> oh, yes, I sure was. <laughs> I received, are, are I received royalty checks uh, for, for a decade. For a decade. Um, I don't think it's being aired anymore. Um, I don't uh, know. But uh, I do have the DVD version. You can watch it on YouTube for free. Um, <laughs> and it's actually, I, I will say, it's kind of a sweet story. It's a bit like a Heritage Minute in the fact that it's kind of a, it's definitely historical fiction. So it takes the real yeah. event of the Halifax explosion, but you're following a family that was not real. Um, oh, okay. So this is a, so this is a fake family and you're following kind of their struggles. So you've got the brother who's just home from World War One, who's got shell shock and PTSD and so obviously like he doesn't cope well with an explosion happening in your hometown and then there's the sister who's in love with this German guy who's been hanging out around town and there's whole, this whole conspiracy in the movie that the explosion happened because of German U-boats and such and like da 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 and then there's like yeah the little brother and the little sister who are like dealing with school and like the mother goes blind from having glass in her eyes which it I believe, and you might touch on this, but I believe that there's a statistic that it was like the largest mass, like blinding injury kind of uh, event that happened ever in history. 
Oh, wow. No, I, I didn't see anything yeah, like so that. Because maybe. people were looking out their windows and this was like non-shatterproof glass, obviously, and very mm-hmm. thin glass, mm-hmm. um, not well insulated. And yeah, people were, so many people were just looking out their windows, watching it because all of the houses faced the water. Right. So you're looking out big windows and, and numerous people were blinded. Um, yeah. Which was, so it was Halifax had to deal with kind of this, injury that doesn't occur super often like it's not like broken arms and legs like it's like mass yeah. blinding mass so, blinding yeah. yeah and so pretty scary but yeah. but yeah it's a it's a it's definitely a made for tv movie in canada it's uh but but it was a cool experience to be a part of and it's definitely i think it still like holds up fairly well like you can still watch it and and, and learn from it so yeah and i mean if people want us to do like a community viewing of Shattered a little, City, a little I, think, watch party. I think that would be super fun. <laughs> we can, can have a little see, watch party online. Yep. You can see nine-year-old Linnea in her <laughs> 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. It'll be a new holiday classic is Shattered oh, City. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. During the First World War, Halifax was a busy wartime port city. The war, while bringing much hardship to the nation of Canada, brought Halifax much prosperity. So, you know, upsides. Yeah, <laughs> always businesses booming. <laughs> After decades of economic hardship following Confederation, Halifax became a wartime hub. The Halifax Harbor is one of the deepest ice-free harbors in North America, yes. making it an excellent port to have tens of thousands of Canadian, British, and American troops pass through on their way to fight overseas. Yes, that is true. It is virtually impossible for the Halifax Harbor to freeze. Yeah, we never get icebergs, unfortunately. It's, uh, yeah, it, it can't freeze through, which means that shipments can always come in and shipments can always go out. So, yeah, very, very convenient for us in Halifax. Yes. <laughs> Before the war, only 50,000 people lived in Halifax, but this population ballooned to 60 or 65,000 people during the war. And that's Keepers. almost... Purely just like an influx of naval officers. Yeah. Millions of tons of supplies were passing through Halifax and was the base for Canadian and Royal Navy vessels and merchant ships. Okay. So, you know, things are busy. Lots of yeah. stuff going on. Lots um, of Navy men walking around in little white outfits, uniforms, their little hats, yeah. being and all I- hot. <laughs> being all hot we also have like german prisoners of war up in halifax citadel oh yeah so lots yeah. of lots of they'd tight. be there yeah. <laughs> pick your nationality um halifax has it halifax, <laughs> we got it we got you <laughs> and i i don't know if i've seen one and i'd really like to because it seems like the amount of ships that were actually in the harbor was just insane throughout for like five years, there was just this insane number of ships in the harbor. Um, yeah. The success of German U-boat attacks on ships crossing the Atlantic Ocean led to the Allies instituting convoy systems. So, you know, it's a buddy right, system. Right. Go yeah. out alone. You got to go out with a bunch of other ships around you. Um, yeah. But because you have to deploy convoys, that means like the amount of ships that have to be deployed at once just like goes up tenfold so all of these ships like either cruisers or destroyers they're being docked in harbors like halifax um Mm -hmm. so i'm just imagining ships like bumper to bumper in the halifax harbor like a lot of people well i don't know that's a generalization 
I kind of believe that the Halifax explosion happened in what we think of as like, like what I would say is like the Halifax Harbor where the Museum of the Atlantic is and like right in the front where Theodore sits, but it didn't really happen there. Yeah, it happened quite a bit farther down towards the Bedford Basin. Yeah. And so I guess down there, there like is a bit more space, but uh, but yeah, still be pretty jam-packed with ships and cargo and Yeah. And people. I gotta imagine like if you I mean, not that fifty thousand is like a tiny city or no. tiny settlement, but like it's not a big city. Like today there's almost ten times as many people that live in Halifax. Yeah. So to be that size and then suddenly have this much activity happening in your hometown. It must just be like, I don't know if there's something I could compare it to that I've ever gone through. So Halifax in 1917 has, has really grown and much of its industrial activity is centered in these growing working class neighborhoods, namely places in the North end, like Richmond, um, which was a really tightly knit community of wooden homes, schools and churches we're still at a point of unpaved roads that are crisscrossing slopes of communities yeah. that lead down to the harbor where factories, naval piers, a sprawling dry dock and a railway yard bustled with activity. Yeah. Further north of Richmond was the African-American community of Africville. And then across the harbor from there on the more sparsely populated Dartmouth shore was the longtime Mi'kmaq village of Turtle Grove, which is now more commonly known as Tufts uh, Tufts Cove. Uh, And it's in all of the kind of iconic pictures of Dartmouth. It's the very iconic red and white stacks stacks yeah yes smokestacks so that's where uh turtle grove would have been and in early december of 1917 a merchant ship arrived in halifax it was the large norwegian vessel the emo and it was on its way to new york to collect relief supplies for the civilian population of the long war plague nation of belgium the words belgian relief were emblazoned in large block letters on the emo's side She had arrived on December 3rd, and though she had been given clearance to leave port on the 5th of December, Emo's departure was delayed because her coal load did not arrive until late that afternoon. The loading series of of unfortunate events already. It's just yeah, that hadn't happened. Yeah, it's like this really like sad thing to go through because it's like there are so many things that if like one thing had been different, this never would have happened. (laughs) Yeah. So because the loading of the fuel was not completed until after the anti-submarine nets had been raised for the night, uh, the vessel couldn't wait anchor until the next morning. So they're so worried about German U-boats that like, basically it's like, it's kind of like when you picture like forts or fortresses, they like close their gates for the night. Yeah. They're basically doing the like water equivalent of that by like lowering and lifting these nets. And so once the nets go up, you can't leave until the next day. Um, So Emo has to stay until the following day. Yeah. And submarines, man, they're crazy. I, uh, (laughs) do you ever just think about submarines? Yeah, I do though. (laughs) I do though. Uh, A couple of years ago, it was actually when I was sailing on the on the blue nose um we were in the halifax harbor and a submarine was coming back from being out to sea and so we oh, saw it crazy. emerge 
Ah. <laughs> bonkers. And then it sort of merges out of the water. And you're like, whoa. And then literally a little hatch opens up and all these men start piling out and are just like now standing. And men and women, I'm sure. But all of these people, you can't see them because it's so far away. But all these people are then just like standing on top of the submarine waving at you. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Like stretching their legs like, oh, finally. Yeah. Like, oh, the ears popped. It's like, <laughs> oh. I don't know if yeah. I could do submarine. I kind of get a little claustrophobic. I and I, I feel like submarines are the ultimate uh, version yeah, of claustrophobia. Test, yeah, test of claustrophobia. Oh, I don't I don't think I could do it. But uh, anyway, so they're stressed about the submarines. So they put the nets up um, yeah. to make sure that submarines or U-boats can't get through. Uh, exactly. And then what happens? So also on December 5th, a French cargo ship, the SS Montblanc, arrived from New York. The vessel was fully loaded with the explosives TNT and picric acid. Dynamite. Dynamite. And yeah. this is a highly flammable fuel, benzyl so and gun cotton. So, so they've got they've got like dynamite mm-hmm. stuff that can light it on fire. And then they've got, you said, packed cotton something, which sounds exceptionally flammable. Um, All on one vessel. All on one vessel. I just want to let everyone who's involved in uh, seafaring at all, that that's not allowed anymore. (laughs) And I don't even think it was allowed then. Well, they're like, they're like, we're surrounded by all this water. So oh, it can't God. be that big a problem. My God. We'll just put it out with all the water everywhere. Yeah. But yeah. they're French, so they're like, ha, ha, ha. No water. We'll use it to put out the no. fire. Oh. No. <laughs> I apologize to the nation of France. Always. <laughs> but not Quebec. <laughs> well, you know, it's not their ship. <laughs> and they'd be like, that's not their accent. <laughs> Mm, poutine mm. <laughs> <laughs> so the SS Mont Blanc intended to join a slow, slow convoy gathering in the Bedford Basin ready to depart for Europe so that's like what you mentioned so like the Halifax Harbor for those who don't know has kind of like this long skinny entrance and then there's this yeah. bay at the end of it and that's where all the ships dock during the first world war for the most yeah. part so if you know downtown Halifax, think like past both bridges. We're yeah. like out there. Yeah, we're, we're going like, out like, there. We're you know the Bedford Mall out that way. Yeah, <laughs> out that way. Uh, there's a beautiful uh, yacht club actually out there. The Bedford Yacht Club is very very nice. Um, very nice. But uh, but yeah, like out there in the big yeah basin. It's kind of like a harbor, just a little smaller. <laughs> Very, very tranquil compared to the hustle and bustle of downtown Halifax. (laughs) Exactly. So that's where she is intending to join the convoy, but she was too late arriving before the nets had been raised. So she gets in too late to actually make it to the basin. Um, Why can't these people freaking be on time and then bad stuff wouldn't happen? So as you mentioned, so ships carrying dangerous cargo were not allowed into the harbor before the war, but the risks posed by German submarines had relaxed these rules. So they're like, we're more concerned that a U-boat will hit this ship out in open ocean than we are that something could go wrong in the harbor. So they're going to let the ship in. 
Um, and I don't know if you're going to touch on this, but I do know this to be a fact that they didn't have the appropriate flags on the vessel. Yeah, there's a lot of miscommunication. That will a lot occur, of miscommunication. Sure. So <laughs> I just want to let everyone know that things like this don't happen anymore because there are actually safety protocols put in place. A lot of them because of the Halifax explosion. Uh, a yeah. lot of marine okay. safety protocols changed because when yeah. an explosion happens, that's bad. <laughs> Not the post to happen. <laughs> yeah, oh and it's God. definitely one of those things where like you can really track all the things that went wrong to result oh, in this. And everything that could go wrong went wrong in went the wrong. Yeah. explosion. So exactly. <laughs> continue enlightening me, Grace. <laughs> so navigating into or out of the Bedford Basin required passage through a strait called the Narrows. Ships yeah. were expected to keep close to the side of the channel situated to their starboard or the right side. And yeah. passing when passing oncoming vessels port to port, that is to keep them on their left side. So, so you know, yeah. like drive it, like stick to like driving. Right <laughs> the ships also had speed restrictions. So that's a speed of five knots uh, or for not boat people, 9.3 kilometers per hour uh, within the harbor. In the water, I will say. That's moving. Fast for boats in the harbor. Moving, yeah. <laughs> that's not slow. The speed, the little like speed boats in the harbor, they go way faster than that. So yeah, but these are big boys, <laughs> big, big ladies actually, because all boats are ladies. <laughs> I like. I know that they are all she's, but like sometimes you get boats that have male names. Or, like, it's typically true. Male so that's names. like so that's like fairly like frowned upon in like boating. Is it like because I mean boating is so like superstitious? Is it considered yeah. like really bad luck to name a boat after a man? It it is also to have a boat with thirteen letters in its name. Okay, that's really bad. So really that bad. Don't, you don't do that. So and there are several boats that had thirteen letters in their names and they have gone down. I wonder if the what are the stats? We should try and compile the stats on that. <laughs> okay, so yeah, to continue with our series of unfortunate events. Oh no. As per its new schedule, the Emo was departing the harbor on the morning of December 6, 1917. It had emerged from yeah. the Bedford Basin and was navigating down the Narrows, sailing on the eastern side or the Dartmouth side of the ch uh, channel. Like street okay. traffic, normally outgoing ships would sail on the western side or the Halifax side of the channel, uh, which to like, would be the right side. You so Emo's think. on the wrong side of the harbor, wrong side of the Narrows. Emo's path required incoming ships to pass on its right or its starboard side rather than on its left or port side, which was customary. Emo had an experienced local harbor pilot on board, William Hayes, who knew the navigation rules of the harbor. However, earlier encounters that morning with two inbound vessels moving towards Bedford Basin, both of which Emo had passed starboard to starboard, resulted in the unusual position that Emo now occupied too far to the east on the wrong side of the narrows. That's bad news, bears. Really that's bad. Good. That's really, really bad. <laughs> so we're starting in a bad place and then it gets so, worse. This is like you're like on the highway and then you just decide to turn around and pull a UE, but you continue driving in the same lane that you yeah. were in, but like on the shoulder. 
Like you're kind of out of the way, but not really out of the way. And it's so, cause it's a boat. So it's so slow-mo of like, yeah, it's just people being like, Hey, that doesn't look good. Yeah. It's and just now people watching. Like, well, I mean, I'm sure then even they were like able to calculate and be like, yeah, it's not going to make the turn it's supposed to make like you can you can tell like even before there were like high tech nautical equipment like I mean those sailors especially the pilot so a pilot is like even now today there's still pilots they drive the yellow boats in the Halifax Harbor Mm -hmm. so it's like if a boat that's not from the area comes in they have to have a pilot you don't get to choose so then the pilot goes out and gets on your boat and then and then helps you like come in Mm -hmm. um so I'm sure that I'm sure that like everybody knew that this was really bad. Like, yeah. William like Hayes I don't, was on the boat. Like, yeah. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, what? Like, the like hell? this is bad. This is going on. <laughs> this is a bad day. <laughs> so then enters SS Mont Blanc. So the Mont Blanc, after spending the night in Halifax Harbor, was cleared to enter the basin. Despite the Mont Blanc's dangerous cargo, there was no special protocols for harbor activities initiated. Other ships, nor the Mont Blanc, were given special instructions to ensure the Mont Blanc's safe movement. So it's just being treated like a normal boat. Francis Mackey, Mont Blanc's pilot, was guiding the ship inbound on the Dartmouth side of the Narrows, which it's supposed to be doing. So it's trying to navigate in on the side that it's supposed to. When he encountered the emotes heading straight towards him in what he believed was the Mont Blanc's lane. Mackey okay. would later maintain that the emo was moving at an unsafe, unsafe speed for such a large, unwieldy ship in the harbor, and also that incoming ships, in this case the Mont Blanc, had the right of way over outgoing vessels. So he's just like, We're the inbound ship. That means we have right away, no matter what. He's also on the right side of the harbor, or the correct side of the harbor. Regardless of the accuracy of those claims, what is certain is that the emo was sailing too far east in what should have been the Mont Blanc's path. Yes. So Mackey gave a short blast of the ship's whistle to indicate that he had right of way, but it was met with two short blasts from Emo, indicating that the approaching vessel would not yield its position. So it's like, we're not moving. <laughs> the like captain- the worst, it's like the worst day to play a game of chicken. <laughs> I know, it's just like, uh, it's so and normally, funny. And I will say like, yeah, okay, if the ship didn't have explosives on it, it would not have been as big a deal and things might have been okay, but it's still two ships explosives. Yeah, it's still two ships crashing, crashing, but like, it, it's actually not okay how often that still happens because people have <laughs> wrong legs. To be honest, but uh, the underworld yeah, when you're, of when you're ships. full of explosives, just like stop, like, just stop. Yeah. Uh, so Excuse the me. captain ordered Mont Blanc to halt her engines and angle slightly to starboard, closer to the Dartmouth side of the Narrows. He let out a single blast of his whistle, hoping the other vessel would likewise move to starboard, but was again met with the double blast, meaning that they're not going to move. Yeah, that's like, no. Sailors on nearby ships heard the series of signals and realizing that a collision was imminent, gathered to watch as the emo bore down on Mont Blanc. 
Both ships had cut their engines at this point, but their momentum carried them right on top of each other at slow speeds. Unable to ground his ship for fear of a shock that would set off his explosive cargo, Mackie ordered Montblanc to steer hard to port for the starboard helm and crossed the bow of Emo in a last-second bid to avoid a collision. The two yeah. ships were almost parallel to each other when Emo suddenly set out three signal blasts, indicating the ship was reversing its engines. Yeah. The combination of the cargoless ship's height in the water and the tra- transverse oh thrust of her right-hand propeller caused the ship's head to swing into Mont Blanc. Emo's prow pushed into the number one hold of Mont Blanc on her starboard side. So it's just like yeah. trying to improvise, not colliding we- into each other, but also not we- effectively communicating between the two ships. Yeah. Yeah. And like you were saying, like they're letting out the short blasts and the like, whatever it's just it's so hard because like in boats everything means a couple different things because like yeah three short blasts is like reverse or it's like i'm Mm -hmm. leaving in reverse like a short blast is like port so you're saying port but you're also Mm -hmm. like kind of trying to acknowledge like yes or no and like two short blasts is like starboard and this is just a mess this is just a mess (laughs) and does it change is so would by this point, there'd be like international signals or would like a French ship may have different interpretations than a Norwegian ship? No, everything would be fairly international at that point. Yeah. So during the war, everything was basically like at, at the time that World War One started, everything was fairly international as far as okay. seafaring went. Um, so like that would be understood. Um, mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but they definitely should have had a flag up that said that we're carrying <laughs> explosive materials. There's <laughs> one of those. Real sign. <laughs> yeah. This boom written in big letters on the side. <laughs> the emo has Norge- Norwegian relief, or uh, sorry, it has Belgian yeah. relief written on the yeah. side. I think Montblanc should just have lots of explosives written on the side for everyone to see. 100% agree. <laughs> So the collision occurred at 8.45 a.m. After a few moments, the two ships parted, leaving a gash in Mont Blanc's hull and generating sparks that ignited volatile grains of dry picric acid stored below its deck. For nearly 20 minutes, the Mont Blanc burned, which is the other thing is that it doesn't explode immediately. So there's enough time for people to be like, hey, there's a fire in the harbor. Let's go check it out. So it like yeah. draws, and like you said, like it draws a lot of people to their windows and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's World War One. It's World War One. It's morning time. People are heading to work, heading to school, um, getting their day started. Uh, yeah. And now there's like a fireworks show in the harbor. Like, yeah, it's like oh, exciting. <laughs> yeah, like we'd go down and out. take Instagrams right now. Like, oh, but back definitely. then. They just like brought the girl noise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the fire encompassed burning drums of benzol, a form of gasoline on the ship's top deck, sending a large plume of black smoke into the sky. The spectacle attracted the attention of people on shore, including children on their way to school and drew many residents to their windows and others towards the ship itself. In the harbor, teams of firefighters and sailors from other ships headed toward the Mont Blanc, hoping they could put out the fire. 
Few understood the danger except for a handful of harbor and naval officials, as well as Francis Mackey and the French-speaking crew of the Mont Blanc, who fled the ship after the fire broke out, rowing desperately in lifeboats to the uh, the Dartmouth side of the harbor. Yeah, which was also another thing. I was going to say, did they tell the other vessel that they had explosives on board? Yeah. I don't think so. Like as basically as soon as the ship is on fire, everyone is bailing. Like yeah. no one is going down with the ship to try and yeah. communicate to the other ships or people yeah. in the area that there's explosives. I also yeah. wonder if the French language thing could have been a barrier, but yeah, probably I mean, you'd have French speaking people in Halifax, I think. Well, At least I also think, like, get off the boat is, like, I think you could probably, like, mime that pretty well. Um, yeah. Let's <laughs> I think get you your point across. Yeah. <laughs> Bad fire. Boom. Like, <laughs> <laughs> There's some basic words that really transcend language. Yeah. Boom is know? one of them. <laughs> boom is one of them. <laughs> Especially with the right inflection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with the right feeling. Yeah. <laughs> So as they did so, the crippled and burning Mont Blanc was now without a crew and drifting toward Pier 6 on the Halifax shore, which is where God. you mentioned. So it's it's kind of like it's right after the bridges, I guess. Like yeah. It's kind of near where the McKay Bridge would be today. Yes. So this is like a busy residential area lots of businesses lots of moored ships it's also where the royal naval college of canada was built and there was a large sugar refinery there as well did not know about the sugar refinery nor did i i don't know if that's like a molasses kind of refinery maybe or maybe sugar sugar i don't know where our sugar cane comes from (laughs) i don't know who's so many questions who's not there anymore what happens next is gone (laughs) so there were two men on shore who learned of the danger and the inevitable explosion that was going to occur one of them was william lovett the chief clerk of the railway yards that were approximately 750 meters from the increasingly dangerous pier six who began running through the yards yelling and warning people that the mont law had deadly cargo and it's going to explode so that's kind of the vignette that they start with in the heritage minute is yeah. william lovett running through the the yards the other person who knew was vincent coleman uh the railway's dispatcher for the nearby rail yards yeah. coleman controlled the busy freight and the passenger rail traffic coming and going out of Halifax. Yeah, he was, I did. Yeah. <laughs> he was preparing to flee his post when he remembered that trains were due to arrive that morning. One of the trains was from St. John, New Brunswick, with hundreds of passengers on board and would arrive in mere minutes. As the Mont Blanc burned and the minutes ticked by, Coleman stayed at his post, tapping out a message on his telegraph key, warning stations up the line to stop any trains from entering Halifax. His final messages were munitions, ship on fire, making for Pier 6, goodbye. The St. John train was ultimately saved, not because of Coleman's message, but because it was running late um, and never reached the north end of the city. However, Coleman's message Uh, which was sent in the final minutes of his life, was among the earliest alerts to send out that a disaster had occurred in Halifax. And so it was vital to save hundreds of lives in Halifax because you just get aid there quicker. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, and from what I understand, like he was sending out that message, but it didn't only go to that one train. Like that message was able to be received by countless other people as well. So it was kind of like a mass message that like there was a disaster in Halifax that morning that was happening. It was the equivalent of a spam email, but this time (laughs) it was very important and it saved lots of lives. (laughs) It was good. He a good kid. So the disaster that he was warning of would become known as the Halifax explosion when at 9.04.35 a.m. So we know to the second when it happened uh, on December 6th, 1917, the Mont Blanc exploded. The explosion, which at the time was the largest man-made explosion ever, sent out a shockwave in all directions, which was then followed by a devastating tsunami that hit the shores of Halifax and Dartmouth. More than 2.5 square kilometers of Richmond was totally leveled either by the blast, uh, the tsunami, or the structure fires that caused buildings to collapse inward. Um, And these fires would have started either from the blast itself, but also just like lanterns and stoves and furnaces that get either damaged or abandoned because people flee. Um, So that just like makes the problem exponentially more difficult. And then on top of that, everything is flammable because everything is made of wood at this point. (laughs) Homes, offices, churches, factories, vessels, including the Montblanc, of course, uh, the railway station and freight yards. And hundreds of people in the immediate area were obliterated by the blast. Farther from the epicenter, Citadel Hill deflected the shock waves away from the south and west ends of Halifax, where shattered windows and displaced doors were the prominent damage. So for people who like don't know the topography of Halifax, we have like a big hill in the center of the city. And so it's really the hill that saves the west arm and south end of Halifax yeah. because it deflects and, the blast. And still like hundreds of people in the south end in that area still died like from, oh, yeah. from the effects yeah. of the explosion. Like it was still like fairly traumatic just that that was able to kind of save a lot of lives. Yeah, not in everything quite so far. Yeah. Yeah. And if you consider like historic properties in the city of Halifax, there's a lot more in the South End just because they didn't get destroyed by the the blast. So you have homes and stuff that predate the Halifax explosion. Whereas if you go into the North End, there's far fewer of them uh, still standing. Yeah. The blast shattered windows uh, in places as far away as like Truro and as you mentioned in Lunenburg. So these places yeah. are hundreds of kilometers away um, yeah. or a hundred kilometers away. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it could be heard as far away as Prince Edward Island. So there are accounts of people hearing the blast in like other provinces. It was big. Big blast. <laughs> The crew of the fishing boat Wave working off the coast of Massachusetts even claimed to have heard the boom rumbling across the ocean, uh, which would make sense that it would carry further over water. Over water. Interruptions. The blast shot vaporized sections of the Mont Blanc, um, and it sent this massive fireball upwards into the sky. The large shank of the ship's anchor was sent mm-hmm. flying across the city and over the northwest arm, nearly four kilometers away, which is where it was found the next day. Yeah. The emo was tossed like a toy boat onto the Dartmouth shoreline. 
Meanwhile, burning metal fragments from the Mont Blanc showered over Halifax along with a black rain of carbon particles. People were also blown through the sky. Where and how they landed largely determined whether they lived or died. So Charles Mayer, the third officer of the vessel Middleham Castle, was picked up and dropped nearly a kilometer from his ship, landing atop uh, Fort Needham Hill uh, in Richmond, and he survived. Like, he was tossed a kilometer but survived. He said later that I was wet when I came down. I had no clothes on when I came to, except my boots. There was a little girl near me, and I asked her where we were. She was crying and said she didn't know where we were. Some men gave me a pair of trousers and a rubber coat. (laughs) It's just like, that's like insane. It's like (laughs) such an apocalyptic scene to just like- imagine just being like thrown up that high into the air and surviving yeah so like I was gonna say my my grandmother her teacher so a woman who taught her uh survived the Halifax explosion and she was a baby she was a baby when the Halifax explosion happened so she would have been like 35 or so teaching my grandmother um and she yeah she was a baby and her family didn't survive um, but she was a newborn and wow. her mom wrapped her up and put her in the wood stove. They didn't have the wood oh stove God. on. So they hadn't been. And her mom wrapped her up and put her in the wood stove and closed the wood stove and uh, like like a big metal uh, wood stove and put her in there. And then she was discovered like a day later because she was crying in the wood stove and they did, like took her to the wood stove. Did her mom like realize that? an explosion was going to happen and did it like preemptively like it seems like some people did like some people knew that things weren't good or like that that bad things were kind of happening or occurring uh yeah people who like and i guess i don't know because it started like the boat started like lighting up like the the mont blanc and kind of like little fragments of the explosion were like coming off and stuff and so it was probably like oh we'll just put you in there in case like the roof collapses, not in case the entire like place goes to rubble. Um, yeah. Well, I'm sure people yeah. could like, if you could see the, if all you could see was like a fire in the Harbor, you're like, yeah. Oh, what if there's an attack happening right now? Like, yeah. So like, you like, what if, what if there's somebody here? Like we should hide the baby. So no one yeah. finds the baby. Kind of thing. Yeah. And so I remember she was on like globe, like she was on like CTV and like live at five and stuff <laughs> when they talked to like Halifax explosion survivors. And she'd always just be like, yeah, I don't remember anything. I was a baby, but <laughs> I have a very, <laughs> <unexpected year. laughs> yeah. imagine like the thing I'm most known for is a thing I don't even remember happening <laughs> at all. <laughs> So the north ends of Halifax and Dartmouth bore the brunt of the devastation. Dartmouth's north shore was sparsely developed. However, the Mi'kmaq settlement of Turtle Grove, where Mi'kmaq families had lived for generations, was completely destroyed. Those houses in Turtle Grove that were not knocked down by the shockwave were soon swamped by the tsunami, and about half Mm -hmm. the population of Turtle Grove died during the Halifax explosion. Crazy. Communities like Richmond were completely flattened. Um, The most prominent features of this landscape were just broken trees and telegraph poles. Houses were reduced to nothing more than splintered piles of wood and hovels of stone. 
railways and piers were ripped from the ground. More than 1,500 buildings were completely destroyed, with an additional 12,000 buildings being damaged by the blast. And the total property damage amounts to an estimated like $35 million. Oh, my God. So the entire city is basically in just silent shell shock. There's just like the the calm after the storm people well just... and it's also world war one so naturally like your head just goes to like oh like we were just bombed like yeah this definitely. is this is like a war crime like <laughs> definitely and your whole harbor schedule is now based on the fact that there are u-boats like yeah I- i'm sure that's definitely people's first assumption oh, 100%. um that, like the germans have arrived in halifax yeah Bewildered survivors wandered the streets, crawling through rubble, nursing injuries. Virtually no one knew what had just happened, and many children had been out on their morning walk to school and were just, like, caught outside during the explosion. So yeah. it's just it just happens to occur at a time of day when, like, families are separated. Like, parents yeah. have gone off to work, or the mom is at home, and the children are out of the house trying to get to school. So, I mean, part of, like, your role in the Shattered City movie portrays that of, like... Yeah, I was a kid in school, and so it's basically, like, we all just get to school, and then everybody, like, goes to look outside the window, and then, boom, and then <laughs> costume change, glass everywhere, fake blood everywhere. <laughs> Teacher's dead. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And so you also have like not just like adults wandering the streets but kids who are like injured and they're like I guess I gotta try to get home do I try to go to school there's a beautifully done scene in the Halifax explosion movie the shattered city movie where it's the siblings find each other at the boys school and the girls school so they find each other outside and she's like you're so dirty we gotta get home like mom's gonna be mad because you're like dirty like you're in shock and then he's like yeah and uh this happened and like pulls up his shirt and he's like got a huge gash in his side and she's like we're gonna be in so much trouble we have to go home and it's just like immediately it's like oh wow like everybody is in shock like yeah you're in shock and I think you just try to find like I think it's more comforting to think your mom's gonna be angry with you for being like dirty and not in school and hurt than like facing the reality of something like you can't even understand be there yeah yeah or that she won't be there and the home won't be there yeah so those that had survived the blast were stumbling home only to find their houses not there or their parents were gone or or dead or wounded or among the wreckage and they can't find them and as you mentioned one of the most common injuries is blindness from the flying glass firefighter billy wells who was thrown from the explosion and had his clothes torn from his body a common uh, occurrence in the halifax (laughs) explosion i guess is like people getting thrown up and when they like come to they're they're naked (laughs) okay um he he described what it was like to see survivors walking around halifax um he said the site was awful with people hanging out of windows dead some of their heads were missing and some thrown on to overhead telegraph wires. So like people were like hanging in telegraph wires oh over my God. the street. It's just like horrific. 
Um, he was the only member of his eight man crew uh, of the fire engine Patricia to survive the Halifax explosion. And how do you even crisis manage that? Like, how do you? Yeah. How do you take that scene and how do you think, okay, this is where we start. Like, that's the thing that gets me about disasters, like from the Halifax explosion to like 9-11. Like, I just, how do you crisis manage that? Especially after the thing has happened. Like, you know, the explosion has happened or the plane hit the tower. Like, how do you then, like, decide where to start? Like, it's just so mind-boggling to me. Yeah, and thankfully you have, like, people who go through, like, training for those kinds of things. Like, on an emotional level, it must be just so hard to, like, set aside your emotional priorities for your practical priorities. Like. Yeah, I know that person is there and I can see them injured, but it is like more critical that I like block off this street so more people don't come down this road. Yeah. Like yeah. just having to weigh those options in your head and make those decisions on the fly. Yeah, is it's crazy. Something I am grateful I don't have to do on a regular <laughs> basis. Yeah. About 1,600 people were killed by the Halifax explosion, and more than 9,000 were injured in the blast. And then an additional 400 people would later succumb to the injuries they sustained during the blast, which brings the estimated death total to about just under 2,000, so around like 1,950 people. Okay. About one third of these victims were under the age of 15. So that's the like other, I, I think it's an element that like, Maybe I just didn't realize, but I never like found super highlighted was that like the child mortality of the event is just so high. Crazy high. Yeah. Uh, just proportionately. It's 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 so many children dying. And I, I don't know if that's just purely because of time of day or just children can't recover from injuries as well as adults can. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Very, very sad. It's awful. I also wonder, like, the population of Halifax at that time, if it, if there were just more children. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, like families on average probably just have more well, children. And you've also got a large population off at war of yeah, young kind of like gone. adults. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. But sad. And it's super sad. It's a residential neighborhood. So yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. The following days and weeks became a relief and rescue mission. And in a lot of ways, they kind of embody what the Halifax explosion gets remembered for. Yeah. Most the most immediate problem was the city now had a suddenly had this home homeless population of twenty five thousand people. Yeah. Um, so like half winter. the city. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And it's winter. So this problem is made worse by the fact that a massive blizzard hits Halifax the day after the Halifax the explosion. Very next day. Yeah. Just, again, another thing in the series of like. Yeah. Freak snowstorm. Yeah. yeah freak biggest snowstorm. blizzard they'd seen. Yeah. yeah. Halifax civilian administration was ill-equipped to respond to the disaster. Before this, most social services or government assistance didn't exist. It's kind of before the social security net in a lot of ways. And most charity came from private and religious organizations that are way too small to respond to the level of disaster that had just taken place. Right. 
furthermore, uh, the mayor was out of town. So the mayor of Halifax just happened to not be there when the Halifax explosion happened. So all of the responsibilities fell okay. on the shoulders of Deputy Mayor uh, Henry Cole. So, like, just like, Poor it's like Henry. Boss is out of town. I'm in charge this week. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> Where is the mayor? I, he was just out, like, out of town on business, like, had mayoral duties that took him elsewhere. <laughs> The deputy mayor is like, fuck. That guy has a horseshoe up his butt. Absolutely. Yeah. Mayor's like, oh, I'm going to go to this conference this week. No worries. No big deal. You got nothing to do, Henry. Is that his name? Is that the deputy mayor? Henry, it's going to be a piece of cake. It's like, trust me, it's easy. Just sit (laughs) behind the desk. And if the phone rings, answer it. And then suddenly the politics explosion happens. And So as deputy mayor of Halifax, he has to do all the mayoral responsibilities, but he himself had only a small police and fire service to call on. So Halifax doesn't really have a big police force or Halifax uh, or firefighter force. So it's mostly like volunteers. Um, And to make matters worse, again, uh, the fire chief had been killed during the explosion. So we also don't have a fire chief readily available. So you're telling me we've got no mayor, (laughs) we've got no fire chief. No chief. Okay, we've got we've got all these homeless people. And the government's like, we don't know how to help people yet. And a blizzard. And a blizzard. Yeah. 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 It's not good. The one thing that Halifax did have on its side was a huge contingent of military personnel in the city true the only thing that they really have going for them was this large population of well-disciplined and prepared people to respond in moments of crisis so not specifically to this but you know they're used to being deployed they're used to taking orders like Uh we have that at least um and so it's a lot of military personnel that are providing relief and shelter to heligonians during this time Civilians were also quick to offer assistance from across Halifax. Survivors rushed to Richmond to rescue people from trapped homes. So where is Richmond? Like Richmond County? Like the just outside of like Halifax? Or is this like a town in Halifax? Is this like a community in Halifax? So that's like a community in the North End. Oh, in the Um, North End. Okay, right, right. You were saying this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like kind of around the McKay Bridge for you know Halifax. but. yeah, it would be like not as soon as you're in the north end, pretty like deep north end. Yeah, deep in the north end. Deep yeah. north end. <laughs> yeah. So people are kind of like rushing to this area and they're trying to like save people or, or carry them out to hospitals or at least to safety. Um, also, a lot of people are like just like handing out clothing. A lot of people are just like clearing debris to just at least have roadways clear for any yeah. emergency vehicles to get in. Local businesses donated supplies and offered work crews to help in the immediate aftermath. Rockhead Prison on Gottagen Street was opened yes. as a shelter for homeless people. So people could like go into the prison to at least get shelter. I did know that the prison was opened. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. It's also, it's also strange to think of a prison on Gottagen Street. It's just like there was a prison on Gottagen Street. Prison. 
But there was also a massive prison in the north and like up past Gottingen, kind of where I think you're talking about. There was like a prison, but in like, I don't know, not that early. It was post Halifax explosion, but there was a, but there was like a prison and then a lot of houses were built for like staff working at the prison. Oh, okay. So it's almost like complex was built. Yeah, it was like a complex, but uh, okay. So. So, you know, people are rallying. They're trying people to help. People are them. rallying. Nova Scotia's strong. You know, it was a <laughs> Nova hashtag Scotia. before it was a hashtag. <laughs> Halifax Explosion was the first Nova Scotia strong. <laughs> yeah. Since the city's commercial undertakers couldn't cope with the number of dead, Shibukto Road School just outside the blast area was turned into a morgue. Um, oh, God. That's yeah. morbid. Yep. <laughs> Meanwhile, city officials hastily organized committees that provided emergency food, shelter, and transport uh, for delivering the injured to the hospitals or taking relief workers into devastated areas. The military was given full emergency powers to commandeer automobiles, control looting attempts, and to regulate movement in and out of Richmond. So... Basically, the military is put in charge. That's the city's response. Right. It's like, uh, you do it. You take care of yeah. it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> in the aftermath of the explosion, the reconstruction of Halifax began, and there were attempts to hold someone accountable for the accident. So okay. there's like legal things that occur afterwards. Right. Emmy um, Le Medec, who was the Mont Blanc's captain, uh, Francis Mackey, the harbor pilot aboard the Mont Blanc, and F. Evan Wyatt, the naval officer in command of the harbor, were all arrested and charged with manslaughter through the chart, uh, though these charges were ultimately dropped for lack wow. of evidence. Um, and ultimately, wow. no one was ever successfully prosecuted for the failures leading up to the explosion, okay. which is just like... It is strange because I also never thought about that. I was just like, oh, yeah, I guess people would want someone to be held accountable. And like when a a disaster occurs, usually, you know, because it wasn't a natural disaster. It was a man-made disaster. Yeah. (sighs) I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I think that it was just like we said, it was like a series of unfortunate events. Like there were so many crappy things that led up to this. Like there wasn't one specific thing that was the major issue. Yeah, and it's also interesting to me that it's it's only members of the Mont Blanc crew that were well, the rest are all dead. I would assume on the on the yeah either people died on the emo or like yeah I don't know if there was just something that's like as the inbound ship it's your responsibility to get out. Of it the is. Way. It is. So it is. They were the inbound ship, and they also I know. And I don't know 100% like facts, but I do know that the Mont Blanc was in trouble because they didn't have the appropriate flags uh, Mm -hmm. up because they didn't, because there was something about the Mont Blanc Blanc not wanting it to be known how much explosives they had. Oh, okay. Like they they were carrying, yes. So they were carrying an illegal amount of explosives. I believe is the case. There was something iffy about what they were carrying and they didn't want to have to disclose. So they chose not to uh, because they didn't want their ship to have to be like checked over or looked over or be delayed any further, I guess. So it was a decision by the crew of the Mont Blanc to not carry the appropriate flags um, on their vessel, which would have 
basically said boom, but in boat talk. Um, <laughs> in boat talk. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I think there was issues with that, but obviously that's not the reason that the explosion happened. There were a bunch of other things that led up to the fact that was just like one thing that was like, not yeah. super great. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, if like, if the emo had been able to leave on its scheduled time, it wouldn't have happened. Like, exactly. yeah, like there's so many things that could have gone the other way and you just wouldn't have had this happen. Another feature of the Halifax explosion recovery that I think gets really commemorated by people in Halifax and in Nova Scotia is that there was so much money raised through special appeals for Halifax in towns and cities and governments from all over the world as far away from Australia to try and help with the reconstruction and the recovery process. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, the National Government of Australia donated a quarter of a million dollars, which is... (laughs) <laughs> I knew I liked the Aussies. <laughs> also, recently, like I, I don't uh, the specifics of the story are kind of leaving me at this moment. But I do know that there was like a man who lived in Australia whose father was aboard a ship in and around Halifax at the time oh, of the wow. explosion. So they were offshore and they could see the plume of smoke. And he was writing in his diary. Like he has this firsthand account of Oh, that's so crazy. Explosion and like, like that. it. And then he like the ship goes into Halifax to try and assist and stuff. But then this man, you know, he like gets married. He moves to Australia. And so it's his, I believe it's his grandson, but it may have been just his son who finds this diary. Oh, and that's it's just so cool. like oh wow like he basically like I think he contacted either the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic or the Nova Scotia Archives and was just like do you guys like care about this and they were just like and they were like Please. yeah <laughs> so they yeah like, we do like flew to Halifax and like oh that's so cool. donated the diary but then also they like did all this stuff and like walked him through everything and yes yeah, so that's really so cool, cool. Oh, that's so yeah. cool I love oh. stuff like that Australian connections to the Halifax explosion. (laughs) The funds donated by the, like, all the, like, governments and industry and individuals worldwide eventually totaled more than $20 million um, and were administered from 1918 to 1976 by the Halifax Relief Commission. So, like, yeah, it's amazing how long that money lasted, too. Yeah. And so this like commission was created by the federal government to oversee claims for loss and damage, rehousing and rehabilitation for explosion victims. The commission took charge of most areas of relief and construction work. It provided ongoing medical and psychological care, paid out cash for the medical travel and living expenses of needy survivors provided housekeepers for widowed parents who needed to return to work or provided money for people whose wounds prevented them from working. So it covers a lot of different areas. And it's also like, yeah, it's quite a sophisticated sense of what recovery means. Like recovery doesn't mean that he looks normal. Recovery means like people having some sense of... Sense of normalcy. Yeah. Yeah. And like a quality of life again and security yeah, yeah. the so commission cool. also oversaw reconstruction of the city including canada's first public housing construction project the hydrostone oh. development oh. kind of like that's richmond 
Um, Neat. Okay. Okay. Uh, and it later later became a pension board dispensing funds to disabled dependents. So wow. like, it kind of cares for people like all through their life. Like, huh? I had no idea. Yeah, n- and nor did I. Like, I think that's like such an amazing piece of yeah, the health. It is. But Hello of course, always does well in a crisis. You know, <laughs> we do our best. <laughs> The most remembered and commemorated relief effort, however, came from south of the border in the form of the yeah. Massachusetts Halifax Relief Committee. Halifax from and Boston. Halifax and Boston have had commercial, cultural, and familial ties for a very long time. Soon, relief workers from the New England area came flooding into the city on trains, bringing with them aid, doctors, nurses, food, clothing, building materials, and skilled laborers. Um, One of those doctors was a man by the name of William Laud, whose experience in Halifax led him to pioneer the specialty of pediatric surgery in North America. So, like, for the so cool, without the Halifax explosion you wouldn't have pediatric surgery as soon as you do. As you did. In 1918, a year after the explosion, Halifax sent a Christmas tree to the city of Boston in thanks and remembrance for the help of the Boston Red Cross and the Massachusetts Public Safety Committee um, provided immediately after the disaster. Yeah. And Nova Scotia still sends that tree every year. So they didn't always do it, but it was revived in the 1970s um, by the Lindbergh County Christmas Tree Producers Association. Christmas tree capital of the world. (laughs) And so kind of like in commemoration of the event and as like a bit of like advertising they began an annual donation of a large tree to promote Christmas tree exporters, as well as acknowledge Boston's support after the explosion. The gift was later taken over by the Nova Scotia government to continue the goodwill gesture, as well as to promote trade and tourism. The tree is Boston's official Christmas tree and is lit on the Boston Common throughout the holiday season. It is perhaps our most poignant reminder of the tragedy and our solemn decision to not only remember the dead, but also the spirit of charity, benevolence, and compassion we show our neighbors in the face of such tragedies. Yeah. And yeah, that's the story of the Halifax explosion. Oh, I'm so looking forward to this episode. I've been so excited. It's my favorite heritage minute. And you you change your mind a lot about what your favorite heritage minutes are. I, I think you just love them all. Like I think you love like probably like 15, like fairly equally. But uh this They're one is just this one's just so darn good. And I'm so glad we got to do it and for it to come out at the holidays. And uh yeah. It is the only one that like I think has a pretty immediate tied to Christmas I guess it's not like super direct but for every Nova Scotian it's like oh yeah it's like it's a Christmas thing because we send a yeah. Christmas tree to Boston every year yeah. and it's just kind of this like nice thing that we do but yeah I, you're right I do change what my favorite heritage minute is all the time <laughs> but I, I do think this one not only is really good but I remember being a kid and like <laughs> And not that, like, you know, I wouldn't consider, like, Nova Scotia 
ever to be a place I was like ashamed to be from. Yeah, yeah. Not that I think anybody should be, but I do remember feeling like a lot of pride and also a lot of like, I felt very like seen by that heritage minute. I was like, I oh, live there. Sure. Yeah. As a kid, I grew up in Dartmouth and I was like, yeah. I, this is like, this happened in my harbor and it's so engaging. And I think it's something that heritage minutes do very well is like you engage small communities in like yeah. a national history. And you're like, I feel yeah. very, I feel a part of something, even though yeah. it's happened almost like over a hundred years ago. And I really don't have any immediate ties or not even any really familial stories about the event, but like yeah. this happened in my community and like, look how brave someone was in the yeah. face of that. So tragedy. I'm connected. So I'm connected. Yeah. You know, this happened where I'm from. So I feel a sense of connection and I feel a sense of like pride and I'm being seen. And this is like my community story. And I think that's so important. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's, I think it's the object of every piece of public history is to make you feel connected yeah. to the story. Yeah. Like the only reason you have museums, it's the only reason you have art galleries is to try yeah. and like create an emotional connection between the visitor and the subject that's being discussed. And yeah. so I think heritage minutes do that in such a brilliant way. They like bring it to your, your home and then they tell you things that maybe like you never heard about, but also things that like happened in your own backyard and you're just so excited to feel part of that story that's so big and, and so beyond you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Aww. I'm so happy. My heart's so full, but you also finally sad did it. because that it's was a big bad. disaster and it was very bad. But uh, but I'm happy that we got to do this one. I think yeah, me. it's going to resonate with a lot of our fans who are from Nova Scotia. Yeah. And, and beyond. And hopefully, beyond, of course. Maybe we've those... got some Bostonian fans out there. If you are from oh, Boston yeah. and you listen to our podcast, please send us uh, a message on one of our social media channels. We would love to uh, give you a little shout out. If you're from Boston and it's like safe for you to go outside and stuff, I don't, I don't know what <gasps> restrictions in Boston are like right now. Go take a picture with the tree. Go take a picture with the tree. We if, would love if, to see it. It is possible for any listener out there to go and like take a selfie with the Boston tree and like tag us in it. That would be like super cool. That would that make would my Christmas. Be, that's my Christmas wish. Yeah. That's the minute women Christmas wish. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you everyone for listening to another episode of the Minute Women podcast. Our last episode of the Minute Women podcast for 2020. Uh, at least time of our. I know, at least of our regular format anyway, we do have a little uh, holiday surprise for everyone that will be coming out before Christmas. Uh, but as far as our regular kind of setup of episodes go, this is this is the last one of 2020, which is wild, completely ridiculous. Um, what a roller coaster so idea. <laughs> uh, and we are we are so grateful to all of you for listening and so grateful to see this year go. Yeah, so thank you everyone for listening. If you're not already following us, please go follow us on our social media channels. We're on Instagram at Minute Women Podcast. And we are also on Facebook by the same name, Minute Women Podcast. And then on Twitter at The Minute Women. 
Uh, we also have a great website that is updated frequently and regularly with all of the episodes, all of the sources Grace uses, and then other information to check out about Grace and I and uh, BNV Media. So please give that a give that a follow. Check it out. Look at it. And yes, if you are in the Boston area, if you know someone in the Boston area, please go get them to take a picture with the tree or please go take a picture and uh, send it to us. We'd love yes. to share it on our social media channels. Oh, that would be so cool. I'm like, ah, I'm so excited. I hope that happens. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. Download the episodes. The biggest support to us right now is if you can review and rate the podcast. That makes it us easier to find online so more people can find the podcast and we can make more friends and share the episodes with more people. And also word of mouth is a really big support as well. So make sure that you're sharing the podcast with maybe your your loved ones and family and friends over the holidays. Also, just before we go, much like how Christmas of 1917 in Halifax was like no other that the city had seen before. We just want to like mention that we recognize that the holiday season for a lot of people this year is going to be like no other that they've seen before. And perhaps you're unable to go home to your family. Perhaps a loved one is going to be missing from your table this year. But we just want to say that we hope that you and the people in your life are safe and that you are able to find and share that spirit of charity and benevolence and compassion that we always seem to find in the face of strife and tragedy and hardship. So we just want to say happy holidays to everybody. Well said, buddy. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye.